Good morning once again. My name is Peter. For those of you who were hanging out in the lobby earlier, we are going to um, put a pause on this series for the summer uh, with today's sermon, and next week we'll have a special one-off sermon um, that I will share with you. But uh, today we want to um, talk about this idea of the knowledge of sin. Those, that's the phrase that the Apostle Paul ends this section with. He says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, uh, I, I feel like I say this all the time, and this is true every time I say it, is I, I really wrestled with this passage because, frankly, I was kind of bored by it. I'm kind of, as a person who's been a Christian for a long time, I'm so sick and tired of preachers and the Bible just kind of constantly telling me how bad I am. And um, I've heard it. I know. I know I'm not a good guy. I'm married. I really know this. And uh, so, you know, you read this passage and it's like just kind of drones on and on about how bad we are. And uh, so one way a preacher could go with this passage is to just kind of paint a really dark portrait of humanity, go through history, go through the news, walk through Seattle, whatever you got to do to kind of... Uh, conjure up images and present evidence for how just bad and how dark the human soul can be. You know, just the plight of being alive is just, it's bad. We get it. It's bad. So I'm not going to go there as much. I don't want to bash us. I don't want to sort of uh, do uh, microphone abuse here. And uh, as I was thinking about this, I also was thinking about what it's like to be in your shoes you know, on the receiving end of the guy holding the microphone. Uh, and I, um, I attended church for three plus years where I wasn't preaching. And those are really interesting three years before I came here. I learned a ton about how awful preachers can be and how oblivious they are to your experience uh, sitting on the other side of it. And so I don't want to, I want to represent you well. I want to do right by you and not take advantage or uh, not forget uh, what it's like to be on that end. So uh, I don't want to hear that sermon, so I'm not going to preach that sermon, Uh Paul here isn't even addressing that crowd. You notice he begins with, what then? Are we better than they? Who is the they? He's talking about Jews. He's talking about himself. People, he's a, he's a, a Pharisee. He's the son of a Pharisee. He's well-trained. He's zealous for God's law. He loves God. He cares about being morally upright. He care, I mean, He's dedicated his whole life to being a pretty good person. And it is to this crowd that Paul is writing this. So his point is not to walk over to somebody who's already down and says, you know what, let me give you one more kick to make sure you stay down. That's not what Paul's doing. He's saying, those of you who think you stand, this is for you. This is for me. The most zealous person that I know, Paul says, this is for me. And so um, if you're sitting here and you just are tired of hearing that sermon, you're not going to hear it today. We're going to intellectualize sin a little bit. Two points. 
sin and then righteousness. Sin and righteousness. Okay, we begin with sin. There's three sub-points. The first is pervasive. Verses 9 to 12, let's read that together again. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Pretty um, inclusive statement. You know, some, sometimes people accuse the church of being exclusive. Uh, not so here. This is very inclusive. Paul is saying every single person in the whole world that's ever lived or will ever live uh, is depraved. This is what the, theologians call the depravity of man. That to be human is to be depraved. Now, there's a pretty strong word there, depravity or depraved. It does not mean that every single person is as bad as they could possibly be. What it means simply is that every single person in every aspect of their life and character and being, in every corner, lit or dark, it's tainted in some way. So you're not as bad as you could be, but there's no part of you that's totally good. Do you buy that? Have you ever had a pure motive? Have you ever done a single good thing, altruistic thing, without yourself somehow in some way being part of the equation? Isn't it true? I think my motives are tainted in some way all the time. It's not that I've done these most awful things. It's not that my thoughts are the worst they could possibly be. But it means that I have within me the potential. I wrote a paper, I remember, in college, and it was a pretty um, uh, um, hard topic. And I wrote about myself being able to commit uh, certain crimes. And I just, I kind of went Dostoevsky on, on this teacher. And I painted myself as this really awful person. And uh, she didn't give me a grade, and she wrote, see me. <laughs> and so I'm talking to this professor after class during her office hours, and she's really upset. She's like, Peter, I don't believe you believe this about yourself. And uh, you have to know one more little detail about this teacher. I was her kid's regular babysitter. (laughs) And, um, And she kept trying to talk me into, she was trying to get me to say that I'm a pretty good person, that I'm not that bad. And I was unwilling to say that. And at the end, I said, but... If you think that my badness is not actual, but it's potential, that it's there, but it, you know, it's, it's really not going to come out. You know, I said, isn't, isn't, isn't there possibility for provocation? And she said, of course, all of us have within us, within ourselves, the possibility of provocation. We can be provoked to do things. 
right? We don't know what we're capable of until we're in that situation. And then I said, if, if I'm capable of being provoked, that means something has to be within me to begin with. And my question to her was, can I be provoked to do something that's not already in me? Even if it's an instinct, even if it's not the potential for a specific thing, is an instinct in me. Like my instinct to survive. What would I be willing to do if, it, if my survival was on the line? And that's how a conversation ended. But this is what Paul is saying when he's talking about the depravity of man. There is none righteous, not even one. Not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. Not even one. You are not as bad as you can can be. There's society, there's culture, there's peer pressure, and there's the grace of God that's holding you back. But remember, the horror, the horror. Anybody know where that's from? Where's, where's that from? Apocalypse Now, Heart of Darkness, is the book that it's based on, right? What, what, what is the human being capable of? What about kill the pig, kill the pig? Where's that from? Lord of the flies. What are we capable of? I have come to conclude after studying this uh, idea about the pervasiveness and the universality of sin that even Kevin, Mr. Ruler Swanson, might fit into this category. Even Julie, she's right, Steele, fits into this category. <laughs> Chris and me and Christine, Brent, I feel like we're capable. I mean, I see us and I'm like, nah, we're sinners. But Kevin and Julie, they often surprise me with their wretchedness, with their total depravity. Okay, second sub-point here is personified. Let's zero in on verse 9 a little bit. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. This phrase here, are all under sin, uh, the Greek scholars will tell you that there's a personification language here. Meaning that sin isn't just some heavy weight that's fallen on you. And all you have to do is muster enough strength to kind of push it off of you. And then now you're free. But this is the way most, I think, people think about sort of the shackles of sin. That you sort of had a weightlifting accident. You're lying on the bench and you're pushing. And you you wanted to do one more rep. One more repetition. But you got caught under it. And now it's not lying on your chest. But good thing you forgot to put the clips on at the end. So all you have to do is kind of shake the weights off a little bit. And then you can push the bar off. And now you're out from under sin. That's not what this is. The language here personifies sin. What this is saying is that you're really under not just a weight. Not a passive weight. Something that's just passively heavier, struck strong, but you're under a person, a tyrant, and this person is actively holding you under its power. That's a very different image to me that you can't get out from the inside because somebody's actively making sure you can't. 
you need help from the outside. You need outside intervention. I was at a uh, a conference uh, a couple of months ago, and um, I heard a speaker named Patrick Lencioni, one of my um, uh, appreciated authors, and he said this. He said, if you say you're going to do something, and then you keep not doing it, or if you say that you're not going to do something, but you keep doing it, then you need outside intervention. Like, if you keep making promises to yourself that you can't keep, you're not going to keep it. That should be obvious because you haven't kept it. Like, you can't, you need outside help. Somebody, some other force besides the force, other than the force that you generate, needs to intervene and help you. Have you ever uh, thought about demons? I, uh, I'm kind of an analytical thinking person, and so I don't really think about this stuff that much. Uh, but there was a season in my life when I just, uh, it felt to me like there was active demonic activity in my life. I don't know how you hear that, but that's my story. And I'm going to stick to that. And uh, twice, I think I've seen demons. I want to tell you one of those stories. One time, this was right before, right in the midst of uh, thinking about and planning to plant the first covenant church that I planted in the year um, 1999, it was. And uh, I was in seminary, and we were living in, in an apartment dorm room with uh, Susie and I, no kids, just married a couple of years in. And uh, I was just really in a special place at that time. I don't know what it was, but I, I would get up at like 5 in the morning every day that first year. And I would go off to pray. And then I would come home and I would make breakfast for Susie. And then I would make sure that she was set up to go to work. I would, you know, warm up her car. I would clean off any snow if there was any. And then after I saw her off to school, I go off and I go to the gym. It was like a really special time and kind of a spiritually focused time in my life. I I mean, who gets up to pray at 5 in the morning for a whole year? And that year, I think just from the sheer stress of um, planting this church, I lost 20 pounds. Just, I didn't have 20 pounds to give, but I lost it. And um, I remember one night, I just was sleeping. And uh, I still, I just got chills right now, just reliving this moment. I remember I felt a tap on my shoulder. And I heard... What I, th- what I believe was God say, Peter, wake up and pray. So I just bolted up. I just got up. And then as soon as I got up, I saw a demon right in front of me. It was just right there. It was black, outlined. It was smaller, but it was in the same proportions as a man. So it wasn't like a baby with a rather large head. It was like a baby-sized, toddler-sized, but with like a man's proportions. And I remember it was all black, and then, but the eyes were even blacker. It was even darker. It was darker than darkness. And I remember it was staring at me. And I remember just feeling, and this is my description for it, I remember feeling pure hatred from it towards me. It just hated me. Hated me, wanted to destroy me, consume me. I remember feeling that, just knowing that in my head. And so the first thing I did was I, I just, I woke up. She said, Susie, get up. You got to see this. Get up. And she, she woke up. She didn't see anything. 
If you ask her today, I think she's helping the kids. But if you ask her, she'll tell, yeah, he woke me up, that crazy guy. She still remembers this. And so I just started praying. And then it just disappeared. I don't know what happened to it. And then I stayed up a little bit more praying and trying to figure out what that was. And then I went back to sleep. Now, I think there is something to like sort of the half sleepy state and why a lot of these stories emerge when there's kind of a um, sleepy state. I think there's some science behind that. Um, But that was the first time I really realized that this whole sin business, evil business, it's, it's real. And it's not just passive. And I'm not just under the weight of my own deficiency. But there is a force out there, a power, a principality that hates my guts. And it does so because it hates God. And God loves me. And it's not for me. This force is against me. It wants to destroy my life. And for some of you who don't believe this, you know, I get that. It's really hard to believe in. If I were hearing it, I may not believe it either. But all throughout Scripture, you know, the Bible describes the reality of demons and angels that have fallen, you know, out of order and out of love with God. And they can't destroy God, and so they destroy us. And they are against us. Have you ever felt the power of somebody who is for you? Well, these creatures are not for you. They are absolutely against you. And I pray regularly that there be a hedge of angels surrounding the people I love. Let the angels fight each other. You know, let the, let the upright ones fight the fallen ones. In Jesus' name. Okay, third... Sin is also personal. Verse 11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. I have a um, mentor. She's my greatest mentor. Her name is Gwen, and she listens to every sermon, so she's going to hear this. She lives up in Vermont in the northeast kingdom, about 20 minutes south of the Canadian border on a beautiful little lake. Uh, called Shadow Lake, and it's crystal clear. You can see almost to the bottom, even at like 10 feet. You can see almost to the bottom. Gorgeous little place, bed and breakfast. I met her when I was bringing a church group up there uh, back in 1996. So it's been a while. And I met her, and I fell in love with her. And if it weren't for her, Susie and I probably wouldn't be married because I was contemplating breaking off our engagement because she had done that to me a little bit ago. Uh, in the engage- that's another story. <laughs> but um, I was just talking to her this week. I called her up just to catch up. And uh, I was asking her how she's doing. And she, she said, uh, you know, Peter, um, I'm getting some. She's uh, over 80 years old now. She's still mowing acres of lawn by herself, clearing snow, you know, gathering firewood, making beds, making bread. It's just massive amount of labor um, that she's engaged in. And... Uh, you know, she says, you know, I have some sciatica down my legs. Twice she survived cancer. And uh, she says, but God is so good, Peter. God is so good. And she starts telling me about the goodness of God. But she did it in a way as if God was real. Like as if God was a friend who cared for her. I swear, if you didn't know, if you substituted out the word God for Bob, you would just think he was a neighbor. 
It's just like a really good, caring neighbor who loved her, was good to her, was, was watching out for her. And it's just, I got off the phone, and I just started tearing up thinking about it. I feel it even now. Because to Gwen, to Gwen, God is real. And some of you may not get this. I certainly really wrestle with this. But some people in this room actually have a relationship with God. Like God is a person to them. And they talk to God. And God talks to them. And some of it is delusion. I get it. Yeah, they're just, we're just making stuff up. But, but a lot of it is real. And they love him and they feel his love towards them. And they connect with him on a very relational, emotional level. And they tell stories as if God is a friend, a neighbor. And, uh, you know, when I think about sin, I don't think about this. But this is what this verse is saying. That we are supposed to seek God this way. That we're supposed to love God in our hearts. Just have devotional affection and energy towards him. He's not just a set of rules. He's not just an idea. He's not just a a theory that we try to prove and, you know, a bag that we hope holds water. God is beyond, God is just, I mean, literally flesh and blood. You can touch him. And uh, there's just sort of more softer parts of me that want that. I just, I want to have that be real. You know, experience God in that very personal, real, relational way. Yeah, I really want that. Um, there's a woman sitting here. Um, I won't say her name, but when Holly knew that I was, you know, I was going to um, preach on the book of Romans, she shared this little devotional that she had made, written uh, for this book. One day she was praying and she was struggling, and then she just said, Peter, I want to share this with you. And the whole little booklet is just her revelation from God about God's personal and deep, deep love for her. I read that and I thought, who is this woman? Like, who relates to God like this? This person sounds more real than, than my wife is to me. I, have to th- I don't even think about Susie. She's not that real. I'm just lost in my own stuff. But yet there is God so real to Holly. And that's what this is saying. That part of sin is not just like doing wrong things, but it's actively ignoring God. It's not loving God. It's not feeling things for God. I did have a moment this week when I realized that sometimes I actively hate God. You know, I've said that a lot as a preacher. I, you know, I've, I've done the fist-shaking thing, like we've shaken our fists at God. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I do that. It's not real to me. But this week, I did have a moment like that. And here's how it came. <clears throat> I didn't get something I wanted. And I, I don't need to say it. It was silly. But I really thought I should have had it. I did. It just made sense. I couldn't see that God's will, quote-unquote, could be anything other than my getting that thing. Like, that's what the universe owed me. You know, that's how the universe math added up. And I didn't get it. And then I felt this little 
tinge of like something negative. And then I kind of traced it. I chased it to its, you know, hiding nesting place. And you know where it rested? It rested in this place that hated God. And, and uh, I want to use some psychological language here. I had triangled God in. Like, I didn't know who to be mad at. I deserved that thing. I needed that thing. I wanted that thing. I didn't get it. And so I was mad at God. He owed it to me somehow. You know, like, I didn't have a name or a face to the person that owed me this. What entity owed me this thing? It wasn't Susie. It wasn't the church. It wasn't my kids. It wasn't my parents. It was, by default, God. And he didn't give it to me. And I just hated him for it. I was, like, mad at him. I had to point the finger at somebody. So there's a part of me that has a need to triangulate It was me and this thing I didn't get, me and this feelings of disappointment and rejection, and I needed to blame somebody. So rejection, blame, triangulation, something like that. It's so fresh to me. I don't quite know how to use one word for it. But it's this feeling of hatred towards God. Later on in verse 10, you're going to see this. It says, there is none righteous. This word righteous, we're going to really get into this in the fall when we dive into this word righteousness. But we're going to learn later in the book of Romans that the Bible's idea of righteous is not moral uprightness in the strict sort of uh, isolated sense of moral uprightness, but it's relational. It's when you do right in a way that benefits your, your village, your community. You know, and so when a, when a soldier from your village volunteered and they come back having protected the village, they are sort of declared the righteous ones. Not because they did some heroic deed out there, but because they protected the people here. And this idea of righteousness is that we are not righteous because we have something or we did something or didn't do something, but it's that we're now we're connected to someone. Oh, man, that's going to be exciting. We'll get to that later. But it's the same sense that sin and righteousness is personal. It's personal. Okay, second point here, uh, righteousness. Two things, confession and grace. Um, Verse 13, 14, and 19, let's read those. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And then verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So there's a lot of um, language about sort of this oral area, right? You got the lips, we got the mouth, we got the... You know, we got the tongue, we got the throat, we got everything. Sort of like uh, ear, nose, and throat specialist here. Um, but what this is really describing here is a courtroom. And this is what the uh, historians and the Greek scholars will tell you here, that this is really a courtroom language. And what would happen is, if you were accused and you were in court, and evidence was presented before the courtroom, before the judge on why you are guilty of whatever it is you're being accused of, 
at some point, instead of making a defense for yourself, when it's obvious to all that the evidence uh, is uh, insurmountable, what you do is you physically take your own hand and you place it over your mouth. And this was their ancient way of saying, I'm Goku, as charged. And so you would stop your mouth. And this little word here, uh, their mouths would be closed, is the word to be uh, encircled and fenced in. So you're taking like your hand like a fence, and you're covering it. So your mouth is not visible anymore. You're saying, I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm guilty as charged. The evidence is before me. The case is closed. And... If you wouldn't do this, if you were stubborn and you kept trying to defend yourself, then a guard, who's, a courtroom guard who's standing right next to you would strike you in the mouth. And this is what happened to Jesus when he was in the book of John chapter 18. He was asked the question. He answered it, right? And so a guard struck him in the mouth because he was trying to say the evidence before you is incontrovertible. It's, it's obvious to all, and you still speak smack. This happened to Paul in Acts 23. He was punched in the mouth because Paul kept talking. And in Acts, it says that Paul shouted even louder to a different group after he was struck. And what this saying is, we keep not shutting up. Meaning, we are constantly defending ourselves, justifying ourselves, making excuses for ourselves with our words, with our deeds, with our facial expressions, with our attitudes, with the decisions we make. We are perpetually defending ourselves. It's all about justifying Peter. I am okay, I'm going to show it to you. I am right, I'm going to hint at it. I'm correct. I'm beautiful, I'm competent, I'm funny, I'm likable, I'm lovable. I'm going to give you reason to why you should overturn your verdict over me. And I think about that. You know, psychologists say about 75% of everything that comes out of our mouths are self-justifying. And you think, oh yeah, that's true of all my friends. Right? But instead, instead, what should be coming out of our mouths is confession. And this is just a hint. The, this passage itself is just hinting at this, uh, where it says, Now we know what the law says. It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. This is saying, Let the law speak. Let the law find you guilty. That's the whole point of the law is to find us guilty. Allowing the law to speak is we confess our guilt. We say the law is right. Many times I've had, I've had this experience where I'm fighting, my ego's in the way, but then I just decide to confess and say the words, I'm sorry. You know, this one author I was reading says the most powerful way to change the culture in any organization is to get the people to start saying, I'm sorry. 
If you can get them to start saying those two words, you've changed everything. I'm sorry. That's the bottom line words. I'm sorry. I said this to Emmy the other day. There was tension between us. I got upset at her. She was feeling hurt and dejected. You know, she literally went to her room and slammed her door. I didn't know my kid would start doing that. It's happening. And then I just followed her in. I said, I'm sorry. That's all I needed to say. I'm sorry. She already knew what I had done wrong. I'm sorry for everything. You forgive me. Confession. Another hint that Paul is dropping here, it's not quite saying it explicitly, is the idea of grace. That's verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's hinting at grace by implying and saying that works cannot save. If works cannot save, what's the alternative? And the alternative, the only alternative is grace. Paul is saying here that there's a very, very, very close relationship. Law and sin are best friends. If you have one, you have the other. So if you're sinning, you're breaking a law. If you're trying to keep the law, it's because you're a sinner. There's no way that you can have any proximity to law without sin being part of that mix in some way. And so Paul, later on, he says in several different places, if I boast, I will boast about my weaknesses. That's confession. That's embracing grace rather than law. If I boast, I will boast about my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is made perfect or complete in my weaknesses. And so Paul, as part of his own personal salvation, embraces grace rather than law, even though he's a professional law keeper as a Pharisee couple of implications for grace that we're going to really dive into later on. First, there is no plan B for your life if grace is true. If grace is true and you're willing to confess and say, I'm sorry to God and to everyone, if you're willing to say, I'm sorry, there is no plan B. You have not messed up your life because where grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That means that there is no second best life that you're living. But there's not plan B. There's not even plan A. Because when there's only one plan, you don't number them. You just have one plan and God's grace is able to commit you to his plan for your life. You have not messed up your life. That God is a redeeming God. That he's been able to redeem every single thing in your life to his purposes for you. Because you love him. That is, you love his grace rather than the law. Rather than works. Your faith is in him, not in yourself. And so you are on God's plan. But only if you love him, he says. I mean, that's Romans 8. And we'll get to that. It means that God is going to be true. That is, he's going to be faithful to his grace until we trust it. Grace is the only plan that God has for our lives. God never says, I need Peter to be, you know, really pick himself up here. It's not by works that I'm going to be okay. 
But at every turn, I'm going to be able to look back and see that it was God who was at work. He's going to be faithful to his grace. And grace is the only way. The gospel is the only power. And Jesus is the only name. And that is the name of the game of righteousness. I have to conclude here a little bit abruptly because this passage just concludes here and it doesn't give us a lot more to work with at this time. Uh, Next week, I'm going to be submitting my rationale and vision uh, for a process that we've been going through as a leadership team, staff, and task force to come up with a new church name for our church. And so you want to be here for that if you want to catch that live. Um, That's going to be from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 8. For now, we conclude here on a note of God's grace, that it is sufficient, that that it abounds in a way that leads us to our salvation. Would you pray with me? God, I, I want to say that every day I'm tired of playing the game of trying to be good enough, trying to appease all, the, um, all these false judges all around me. Either they make themselves judges or uh, I put them there uh, in a place of judgment over me. But God, you alone should have power over me. And it's not me. It doesn't matter if I commend myself or if others commend me. But it's whom you commend. And I'm your servant and you're able to commend me and and declare me worthy. Because you make me worthy. It's the Jesus in me. And so I pray that for all of us. That we would rely more and more not on ourselves not on our abilities or ability to deceive others or uh, manipulate others, our strength, our competence. But I pray, God, we will put our faith and trust in you, your love for us, your declaration over us. God, we know we're sinners. We know deep inside we know we are in need of help. Connect us with that truth and then connect us with the reality of your grace and love in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.